When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. The sun was shining. I was laying in bed, wondering if she changed at all, if her hair was still red. Her folks, they said our lives together sure was going to be rough. They never did like Mama's homemade dress. Papa's bank book wasn't big enough. And I was standing on the side of the road, rain falling down my shoes, heading out for the old East Coast. Lord knows I've paid some dues getting through, tangled up in blue. She was married when we first met, soon to be divorced. I helped her out of a jam, I guess, but I used a little too much force. We drove that car as far as we could and abandoned it out west, split up on a dark, sad night, both agreeing it was best. She turned around to look at me as I was walking away, and I heard her say over my shoulder, we'll meet again someday on the avenue, tangled up in blue. I had a job in the great north woods, working as a cook for a spell, but I never did like it all that much, and one day the axe just fell. So I drifted down to New Orleans, where I happened to be employed, working for a while on a fishing boat right outside of Delacroix. But all the while, I was alone. The past was close behind. I've seen a lot of women, but she never escaped my mind, and I just grew, tangled up in blue. She was working in a topless place, and I stopped in for a beer. I just kept looking at the side of her face and the spotlight so clear. And later on, as the crowd thinned out, I was about to do the same. And she was standing there in the back of my chair, said to me, don't I know your name? I muttered something underneath my breath and she studied the lines on my face. I must admit, I felt a little uneasy when she bent down to tie the laces of my shoe, tangled up in blue. She lit a burner on the stove and offered me a pipe. I thought you'd never say hello, she said. You look like the silent type. Then she opened up a book of poems and handed it to me, written by an Italian poet from the 13th century. And every one of them words rang true and glowed like burning coal, pouring off of every page like it was written in my soul from me to you, tangled up in blue. I lived with them on Montague Street in a basement down the stairs. There was music in the cafes at night and revolution in the air. Then he started into dealing with slaves and something inside of him died. And she had to sell everything she owned and froze up inside. And when finally the bottom fell out, I became withdrawn. And the only thing I knew how to do was keep on keeping on, like a bird that flew, tangled up in blue. So now I'm going back again. I got to get to her somehow. All the people we used to know, they're an illusion to me now. Some are mathematicians, some are carpenters' wives. Doing how it all got started, I don't know what they're doing with their lives. But me, I'm still on the road, heading for another joint. We always did feel the same. We just saw it from a different point of view, tangled up in blue. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and uh, joining me this week for a very special 100th episode of the show is uh, my pal, the host of the Definitely Dylan Show, the Bob to my Joan, the Ronaldo to my Clara, the Billy Parker to my Molly. Laura Tenchard. Hi, Laura. That's the best introduction I've ever gotten. <laughs> I've been working on it for weeks. I'm glad you like it. It's amazing. Hi, Rob. And thank you so much for having me back. I'm so excited. I, thank you for, for coming back. I mean, we had a blast on episode 75 talking about Caribbean wind. And I will, I, I will say, as soon as we finish that show, 
I had such a good time with you and it was such a, a wonderful conversation that I was like, well, now I know what I want to do for episode 100. But that's like, I don't know, like a, almost a year away at this point. But I, so I waited. I just waited until I got to around eight, number, I think around number 90. And then I finally wrote you and I was like, oh, would you mind doing this? And of course, it's got to be a big song. And this was one of these, you know, songs I've been holding off, waiting for the right moment to do because this is one of, you know, in a history of amazing songs, this is one of the most amazingest. Yeah. Uh, the opening song, of course, from Tangled Up in Blue. And so Laura and I are going to talk about all the many different versions of this song. Uh, we're not going to necessarily stick to a chronological uh, kind of trajectory because the song itself doesn't do that. Um, but we are going to start with, of course, the album version, which is the one we just quoted from, which is the opening track of Blood on the Tracks. And it was the version that he re-recorded. Uh, in uh, Minneapolis after he had decided to pull a bunch of the songs that were recorded in New York and he on the uh, advice of his brother David <laughs> which is uh, in the in the dictionary under the word chutzpah is uh, this moment where his brother David's like I think you could record a couple record a couple of these do, songs Bob I think you can do better than that Bob yeah. <laughs> wow okay uh, they must have a very particular relationship uh, he then went and re-recorded this song and I don't know how you feel about it, Laura. I mean, this is a song that Dylan famously said it took him two years to write and 10 years to live. Mm. I I think that this all the versions of this song are excellent. I mean, I haven't heard I a agree. version that I don't like. <laughs> but I have to say, I think this version, the one that, that made the record, is not only one of the best things he's ever done. I think it's one of the single finest studio recordings any popular musician has ever done. Yeah. I think I think I agree. I mean, when we were talking about um, Caribbean Wind, and by the way, I also had such a great time when we talked about that song. And so, of course, I feel more than honored to be back for the 100th episode. But when we were talking about Caribbean Wind, which never got that final definitive recording that would then come out on a um, on a record we talked a little bit about you know what definitive means in terms of you know for Bob Dylan and I, I really think that with Tangled Up in Blue the album version can really be considered definitive in a lot of ways and I, I wouldn't be surprised that if, if that maybe also has to do with the fact that Dylan did keep revisiting the song and kept rewriting it because it's almost like with that one version, he really achieved, you know, the peak of something. So moving on from that version means doing it differently. You know, there's nothing to chase anymore. There's no, um, you know, forward trajectory anymore. You have to almost take it and take it into a different direction and strip it back again or do a big band sound or some, something like that or change the lyrics to take it to a place where it still feels fresh and we know that that's something that Dylan always strives for. Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, this is, it's amazing. This is a song that up until like just a couple of years ago with the Mondo Scripto, mm -hmm. uh, he's, he's never stopped playing with this song, uh, yeah. which is remarkable. And I almost feel like there are times where he feels like it's, malleable and which is amazing for a story song you would think a story yeah. song would be the, the the completely not the kind of song that you could keep changing because you, you're sticking to a story but i mean like i remember in the in the 70s after he had, had the, he entered his born again phase uh, instead of uh the the at one point uh, the 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 guy in the stripper read from the the gospel of saint matthew mm -hmm. i mean he was making it specific to the thing he was going through at the time so it's it's an incredible incredibly malleable song yeah uh, again which is remarkable for something that has such a strong through line but of course 
we everyone knows or not everyone knows but i mean this was uh influenced by his work with the painter norman rabin who he gives a lot of credit to and said that norman helped him learn about how to sort of have a more kind of mosaic approach to songwriting where you see mm-hmm. bits and pieces of it. And you're, as he says, you can, you see the whole of it uh, once you step back, but in the middle it's, you're not really sure what's going on. And I've always tried to figure out what is it about this song that's so utterly compelling aside from the performance. And we will talk about that of this yeah. amazing performance of it, but it's, there's something where I feel like there's parts of the song that are clearly biographical and then there's ah. parts where they're that are not, mm. and it's that stuff where it keeps kind of shifting in and out of. Of course, as we know, and the, the, the tense of this song keeps changing too. It's first person, then third person. But I mean, it's like the stuff about she was married when we first met, soon to be divorced. Okay, yeah. that's probably Sarah Lowndes who he's talking about, who was married when he met her. Uh, but then the other stuff about you know working down on the <laughs> on a fishing boat. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure Bob Dylan never did that. <laughs> So it it always feels like it's like is he borrowing from other people's lives? Is he borrowing from life that maybe he wished he had? It's yeah. that 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 constant feeling of I don't know what's quote unquote true that I think keeps keeps leaves me coming back to trying to like figure it out. Even though I've been listening to the song for thirty years and I'm never going to figure it out. Yeah, I think to me what's really appealing about the song is that on the surface it's really deceptively simple it's it's really accessible on first listen you know it starts out early one morning the sun was shining and immediately you you're kind of with the lyrical eye with the narrator and um and then it kind of goes off on this journey through you know a life or lives and um what what is compelling about it is the way it shifts and the way we get introduced to these people from so many different angles and in different yeah different tenses and different with different pronouns and um, i think that's kind of what keeps you hanging on uh, that you you know it, the, the the journey is in a way really easy to follow but you're never really sure what story is actually being told. You know what the what the whole story is, and it's yeah, it's like a mosaic. It's like or you know, uh, I mean, it's it's kind of too simple to say. You know, it's like a David Lynch film. You know, where everything <laughs> kind of makes sense, but if you had to put it in your own words and kind of logically explain it, then you know, all of a sudden it wouldn't make sense, or you would have a really hard time doing it. But I do think that. Um, what you already said that Dylan took so much influence from Norman Rabin, his painting teacher, I think makes a lot of sense in the way that I don't know. I, I just had this idea that with a painting, you know, you build the layers of paint, not necessarily in a way that makes sense at first, but you build up the pigments, you know, you add accents at a much later point. And you, you put that down a certain uh, foundation of color that you then add to. And I think the writing of the song almost works in a, in a similar way where um, we get things added at a later point that then in retrospect also change the way we see the earlier verses. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I was hoping you would talk about the biographical angle because, um, I, yeah, as you said, I think it's really tempting to read a lot of the... Um, I mean, or some some lines in the song as autobiographical, and definitely that she was married when we first met, soon to be divorced. Uh, although I do think that actually Sarah and her first husband were already divorced when oh, okay. they met. Right. But um, but I think 
it's it's so tricky because I've read fans online saying, well, you know, Sarah actually used to be a stripper because Dylan sings Entangled Up in Blue. She was working in a topless place. And I think that's, if you go with that angle, and I'm absolutely not saying that you're doing this, uh, I think it can lead you down the rabbit hole in, you know, a difficult direction because, I mean, Sarah was working for, for a really brief period. She worked at the Playboy Club. In, in New York, where she worked as a waitress, um, not a stripper. And I think that that is an aspect of a biography that actually I, because I was just in Tulsa, right, in, at the Bob Dylan conference, and I talked about like women and Dylan and um, how, why we need more women writing about Dylan. And one example that I gave was that I think the, the women in Dylan's life have often gotten an unfair treatment from a lot of men writing about them because, you know, for example, this image of Sarah Dillon having been a Playboy bunny is like really fascinating to a lot of writers. And so they introduce her, they say, oh, you know, and then uh, Bob Dylan married uh, Sarah, a former model and Playboy bunny, when really at the time when they met, she was a secretary working for Time Life uh, for, for the film division. And she was actually doing something that was very, like, very much different, like an office job. She introduced him to D.A. Pennybaker. Right, and, right. Um, so had a very different role, actually. But um, And I know I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but I do think it relates because Blood on the Tracks is generally regarded as such a personal album. And I think it is, but I think a lot of people uh, confuse a personal album with an autobiographical album. Yes, yes. And I think, and you know, again, I'm not saying that when he was writing the lines, you know, she was married when we first met, that his own life didn't play into that. I mean, it might as well. Oh, it, it, it might well. But um, I think the biographical angle is by some taken to the extreme. And I think that's to the detriment of the song, because usually when they follow that line of thinking, they disregard some really important lines, you know, for example, that whole story about him working in the Great North Woods, or, <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> or, or the, the story about, you know, his papa's bank book wasn't big enough. I mean, even right, when that's they, clearly not his life, yeah, right? That is, yeah. that is not his life. And um, it's, but then, obviously, the, the thing that I always thought was, felt really personal to me is at the very end kind of the conclusion of the song where it says me I'm still on the road heading for another joint which he's since changed but to me that was always him talking about his life as a performer and as an artist as well you know on the road can be being on the road playing concerts but it can also just be you know not settling down and this did come at a time when he for you know several reasons decided to leave the more domestic life behind i mean his marriage was falling apart um but i also think he made a choice to kind of put himself out there again and leave that domestic sphere and become a touring performer again uh and that is something that i always heard in the conclusion of the song and that's now taking on a totally different um, meaning when he sings it on the quote-unquote never-ending tour, which he's been for <laughs> over 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I agree that, uh, that there's lots of things that can be, uh, are clearly inspired by, but they're not about. 
And that's, you know, I mean, I think he's probably is inspired by his relationship with Sarah with the line about she was married when we first met. But it's not about her. Yeah. It's about something else. And, I mean, even, in, again, the opening lines of the song where he talks about, um, wonder if she changed it all, if her hair was still red. Well, there's a red-haired woman shows up in You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go. Yeah. Uh, and ostensibly that song is, quote, unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, about Ellen Bernstein, this, the, the Columbia Records executive. But she wasn't a redhead in particular. So, I mean, you've got this, the, you know, there's this woman. Is it the same woman from that song that's in this song? It's like the, the blood on the track cinematic universe, as it were, yeah. with these characters kind of intermingling. But, yeah, no, I agree that uh, if you try and pin everything down to just he's just doing his autobiography – I, that's, I think that's a pedantic way of looking at it. To me, it's a yeah. boring way of looking yeah. at it because yeah. it's like, well, all right, then you're just, then he's just telling us about his life. Well, he, they, what, what do I care about that then? Yeah. And uh, to go off to to follow your tangent a little about the whole thing with the Playboy Club. Yes, I have seen way too many Dylan works refer to her as former Playboy you know, model or former Playboy waitress as if a job that you had for a year or wherever she had it out of you know her 70 years on this planet is somehow defining you know i mean i I worked i worked for six months at a liquor store once i don't like to be called a liquor store employee you know it's like a brief thing i did and i think unfortunately a lot of men uh, they want to jump to that because it's exciting and it's titillating in its own way it's oh he married a playboy mom makes her Uh, come on you know so it's telling about her it's telling about her looks and um i mean this is this is something that you know uh, reducing reducing the female characters to their looks, I think, is something that happens, you know, in general quite a lot. But I think with Sarah Dillon, who has always stayed out of the spotlight, and I mean, um, it's I think it's fair enough. We don't know much about her, so people don't have that much to go on by which to define her if they have to kind of sum her up in a sentence. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I do think that it's a bit of a shame, and actually. In her, I mean, for what it's worth, in her official Wikipedia entry, that line has been taken out about her working in a Playboy in the Playboy oh, Club. So right. I, uh, I'm I'm wondering whether that might not have been an official decision from her side or whatever. I don't I don't know. I think it's an interesting at least. Yeah, I mean, she's clearly someone who probably contain you know contains a whole lot of knowledge about the man and clearly has chosen to respect. His privacy and her privacy and stuff like that. And then she doesn't, she's not, she doesn't talk. You know, yeah. she does not talk. And that's a, uh, I don't, I don't necessarily want to say that's commendable necessarily, but it's clearly the way she's chosen to go through life and good for her. Yeah, I, we have right to respect to, it. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's, I think, I think that's what it is. Just, just by association with Dylan, you know, you can't expect everyone to take on the expectations that he has had to, you know, face, uh, face. By having become such a public figure, and I mean, you know, just look at someone like Joan Baez, another woman from, you know, that was associated with him at one point in her life. People still, like last week or something, in interviews call her Bob's ex-lover. You know, and this is. This, before, <laughs> if only Joan Baez had accomplished anything else in life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Before mentioning her name, you know, that's the descriptor. Bob's uh... ex-lover, Joan Baez, and. I mean, oh I just, God. I mean, I'm, I'm sure she is well over that and she knows her self-worth and she's obviously a very uh, confident and talented woman and uh, successful in her own right. But in those moments, I always feel so, you know, I, I feel so angry with the people that they don't 
realize how disrespectful it actually is. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's absurd. Yeah, that. Oh, good lord. Uh, <laughs> that's just that's just so sad. Um, so, so in the in the the second verse, there's a line here. I mean, this thing is every line in this song is is fantastic, but. There's, I love that in the second verse when he says, he says, she was married when we first met, soon to be, soon to be divorced. I helped her out of a jam, I guess, but I used a little too much force. And I love already the instant sort of self-reproach in this song, because obviously if someone wanted to do an album of breakup material, which is, you know, what Blood on the Tracks is, um, if you wanted to, you could just do 10 songs like Idiot Wind. You know, you could just do 10, I'm really mad and yeah. you did me wrong. But immediately, right in the very beginning, he's got that self-reproach of, I used a little too much force, which is, mm-hmm. I'm doing this thing for this person, but I think I probably did it a little too hard, and that's going to come back to, to haunt us. And so yeah. right there, he's already planting seeds of, I helped this person achieve liberation from a bad situation, but uh, it's probably not in the way that they necessarily want it or the way that I should have done it. And I love that it's just this song moves at such a pace uh, that you can kind of get caught up in it and you move, you're moving on to the next line before you really have had a chance to sort of contemplate what you just heard. But that line always jumped out at me of just that kind of shruggy like i used a little too much i helped her out of a jam i guess but i used a little too much force mm-hmm. i just love that that's i think that's really compelling to me and that's also one line that stays pretty consistent at least for the first couple of years i just i transcribed <laughs> i transcribed like lots of different versions like god i'm such a nerd um, <laughs> and then bolded the bolded the lyrics that changed from <laughs> And for example, I mean, on real life, and because like be- before we did this, we had a little exchange in messages and decided, you know, which versions we should focus on because he's obviously rewritten the song throughout the years. And um, I think I, I agree. I, I really like the tone of the, that verse and the previous one as well because the song starts out in this way that's immediately reflective, right? It kind of starts right. in the. It doesn't start in the present. It starts like in the recollection, right? Early one morning, he was laying in bed wondering if she changed at all, if her hair was still red. So it's almost like in the past, but he's thinking about the past. So he's thinking about a past that's even further back than the past, <laughs> and um, which, is, which is interesting. And I mean, I think this idea that the time or that the tenses are all jumbled up in the song, I almost feel... Like, that's become a tiny bit of a cliche, um, even though it's true. But I think um, with this song, it's almost like it has an internal logic. It has its own internal time that is needed for the telling of the story. And for that logic to happen, we need to jump around in time a little bit. And um, because to me... Uh, I, you know, we can get into that a bit further along, like, you know, what the hell is the song about or what the song (laughs) she does. Um, And I'm sure we all have our own readings of the song. Um, But, yeah, I think it's telling not just one story. It's telling several stories that kind of all amount to one big story. And I think this recollection and the self-deprecation that's in that line, it helps her out of a jam, I guess. I think... It really helps set the tone for who the narrator is and how he is 
looking back. I mean, that's the same to me. A line that does a similar thing actually is when he says, "I muttered something underneath my breath," and I must admit, I felt a little uneasy. Mm. You know, there's that. There is. There are these moments that make us really sympathize with the man telling the story or the stories, because he's showing this weakness. And he's, right, just, yeah. he's, he's giving us like these um, these little bits and pieces to kind of like hold on to and to uh, that, that give like a, a look into his psyche, I think. Yeah, he does. The, he does use that device a lot of of a guy, or or, or or at the very least, the narrator. Maybe not necessarily doesn't have to be a guy, uh, and the narrator in a room somewhere thinking about this. Thing. And in fact, he uses that in Caribbean Wind, which we talked about. Yeah, true. Uh, and that that does feel like uh, somewhat accidentally biographical because if I imagine Bob spends a lot of time in hotel rooms. Yeah. You know, and that's probably when he's sitting there thinking about stuff. So it feels sort of natural that this is why this guy's laying in this room. And it's sort of funny in that second verse where the, he talks about uh, we banded it out west, split up on a dark, sad night, both agreeing that it was best for many years until there was official uh, until there were official lyrics to this song. Uh, you had to just make do with what you could get, you know, pre-internet. You had to kind of just figure it out. And for many years, I always thought he's saying we split up on the docks that night. And in Simple Twist of Fate, they mentioned docks. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, there's docks in these sure. both these songs. You know, it's all again, it's it's all these these things are intermingling back and forth. It's like that these characters are on docks again. Maybe it's yeah. is it maybe it's a different set of I don't know, you know, but it it had that mystery to it. Now, of course, now we know quote unquote officially it's dark sad night, but it really could have been docks that night as well, too. It would have worked yeah. just as well. And I, I'm I, I am not totally convinced that Dylan might not have sung it as Docs that night, in, you know, at some point. It's, and, you know, I think this is this is a really interesting point and something that I've, I think I've thought about more after the More Blood, More Tracks bootleg series came out. But I do really think that Blood on the Tracks, while I wouldn't call it a concept album, um, I really think there are certain themes that run through, as is the case with most Dylan albums, to be honest. But um, I, I think... The songs are very much that they belong in the same universe. Yes. And I, for, for yes. example, I always thought that Simple Twist of Fate and Shelter from the Storm are telling a really similar story, but from different angles. They're mm. almost like they're almost like sister songs. And um, even <laughs> ironically, I, I'm calling them sister songs. But there's even this idea of the you know I, I still believe she was my twin, but I lost the ring in. Um, a simple twist of fate, and then in Shelter from the Storm, he sings, "If I could only turn back the clock to where God and her were born." And you know, in the one song he sings, "But I was born too late," and then he says, "If I could only turn back the clock to where God and her were born." So I think it's such similar imagery, um, all surrounding an encounter where you know, boy and girl meet, and they have a brief thing before they go their separate ways which i think is at the core of both songs again i'm totally going off on a tangent but that's inevitable uh, when you're doing (laughs) yeah but also i mean i think obviously tangled up in blue is the opening song to blood on the tracks and i think um it's it's worth kind of considering it in the context of that album as well and it i think it's the it's the perfect song to open the album i, I mean i don't know about you i always still tangled up in blue is one of the great opening songs of any album um and you know when i was when i was growing up i had 
a stereo where you could put your CD in and like have have the alarm clock start with music. And Tangled Up in Blue was the song that I woke up to for, I think, many years because it was wow. perfect. Blood on the Tracks was the perfect album to wake up to, I thought. I mean, it's, it's the perfect <laughs> album for many things, but including, I think, to start your day. Well, I always, again, in that same verse, uh, when, when he's, he says, as I was walking away, I heard her say over my shoulder, we'll meet again someday on the avenue. Tongue it up in blue. And if I recall correctly, one of the alternate titles for Simple Twist of Fate had the word Avenue in the title. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so it's like, again, it's like, are, is, are we talking about that this character is going to reappear in another song at some point? So, yeah, I mean, it really does. These things blend together amazingly well. And again, it's it's the I mean, the idea that you're breaking up with someone, but you know you're going to see them again someday is haunting in its own way because a lot of times, of course, when you break up with someone, you 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 know are abjectly removing them from your life. Uh, Bob seemingly hasn't led that life. He seems to have continuing, ongoing relationships with a lot of ex-lovers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you mentioned the aforementioned Joan Baez, who, of course, we all know is Bob Dylan's ex-lover. Um, <laughs> you know, no, no, but I mean, no, you know, no. Bob Dylan is Joan Baez's ex-lover. <laughs> okay, oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, one, exactly. But, but, you know what I mean? It's like, around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but most of the people in my, in most of my ex-girlfriends, I don't, they're not in my life anymore yeah. for various reasons. But Bob doesn't seem to quite have that. They seem to kind of travel in and out of his life. And so, this, again, that idea that you're breaking up with someone, but then the woman is kind of like, we'll meet again someday on the avenue. And it's just like, oh, okay. And it at the same time, I feel like that line could be uh, comforting, but also a threat a little bit. You know, we'll meet again someday on the avenue. Well, maybe I don't want to see this person. I don't know. Yeah. You, it depends on how you want to take it. It could have an ominous cast to it if you choose to look at it that way. Yeah. So, I mean, to be honest, I had this – because I've been looking at that song – quite closely in the last few days to kind of come up with some thoughts that we could discuss in in the episode today. And all of a sudden I had this idea and I'm actually not so sure that he is ever singing about the same woman. Right. Because, so I think it's the first verse that kind of sets up or sets us up for this illusion. Or is it an illusion? I don't know. That the song is about (laughs) the singer's relationship with one woman. Because, you know, as I already said, it plays out in his memory and the memory is already in the past. And then we kind of continue in that vein about the woman that was married and, um, you know, and she never escaped his mind as long as he, you know, he was gone. Um, it's almost like, um, this, you know, and I won't forget her as long as she's gone, which is Caribbean wind. Um, <laughs> and, and then when he meets her, quote unquote, again, in that, I think it's the fourth verse, in the topless place, we assume that the connection that they immediately have, you know, that chemistry between them, which is, like, I think, stronger than in almost any Dylan song. I think that sexual tension that is described in that uh, in that verse, um, you know, with her being really close and studying the lines on his face and then, you know, bending down to tie the laces of his shoe, you know, whatever that means, I think is um, a lot more... You know, uh, there's sparks flying, and I think in a way that we don't get that often in Dylan songs. But um, I think then then we have that verse about them living together on Montague Street, and things kind of fall apart. And then the last verse promises that return to the to her to you. And I think all of that makes it creates the illusion that he's talking about the same woman. But I 
am actually not convinced because so I mean I the way I see the song is that it's a song that chronicles the many lives that all of us live through and it's kind of chronicled through the lens of romantic relationships and I think each verse stands for a different woman and they, they're all different types and they all have different backstories. So, for example, in the first verse, you know, he's remembering a woman with red hair. It's kind of vague. But then the next verse where he talks about, you know, her parents uh, being concerned because his parents don't have enough money. That sounds to me almost like high school sweethearts that are thinking about getting married too early. Yes. Uh, you know, the parents, the parents think maybe he's not good enough. You know, she can do better. You might, you might say he's from the wrong side of the track. Yeah, exactly. That is not the same relationship as him meeting a woman that's soon to be divorced. Yes, that's a yes. Yeah. That's, a, that's a different story. And then the next one, are we, are we really uh, to believe that the woman working in the topless place is the same woman that has recently been divorced? I don't know. It's possible, of course. Um, but I think to me it always seemed like this connection that they have, you know, when she approaches him. I mean, he's about to walk out, you know. It feels like if they really had a history... He would at least say hi, but it's, <laughs> but it's her that approaches him and says, you know, you know, don't I know your name? Or in another version, it says, don't tell me, let me guess your name, you know? And obviously, we, th there is this ambiguity, you know, do they know each other? Do they not know each other? And because of how the song has been set up, you know, we're led to believe that there's a red thread running through. And I think that's deliberate because there is, there is to be a connection between all these women in the sense that they all become the collective her in his life story. But just like there's not one, that like the her isn't just one woman, the I or the he is also not just one person. There's, similar as with Caribbean Wind, you know, the, he switches from I to he, and then sometimes he says, I live with them on Montague Street. Mm -hmm. So there's this dissociation from the, um, from the he and the she, um, almost like the I breaking away to go on and live another life. And in the real life version, he actually says, you know, the only thing I could do is be me and got, get on a train and ride or something. Yeah. Um, and it also really interesting because the, to get back to the, the different women again, because earlier you said, you know, the stripper is showing him that book. And I also always heard it that way. Um, and I always loved this character of a woman that is both uh, either a, a stripper or at least someone who works in a topless place in some capacity, who then also introduces him, him to all sorts of poetry. I, I love that idea of this woman being both um, and not kind of just a trope of, you know, she works as a stripper and therefore can't be interested in poetry. Um, right, yes, it certainly subverts your expectations yeah. of what a character would be, that she's she's reading poetry from a, from the 13th century while yeah. she's also a stripper. And like, well, uh, yeah, because, you know, not, not just because you're a stripper doesn't mean you're not well-read. Of course, yeah, exactly. But then, because I was thinking about it as these different women and how Dylan actually subtly makes sure we don't mistake them, mistake them for the same woman, because that line about... Um, I always find that a bit jarring, actually, when he says she opened up a book of poems and handed it to me, written by a th uh, an Italian poet from the 13th century. Um, actually, no, she, says, uh, she lit a burner on the stove and offered me a pipe. 
I thought you'd never say hello, she said. You look like the silent type. But in the previous verse, if we actually go back, it's not him that says hello. It's her that says hello. Right, right. It's, it's her that approaches him. And yes, he does actually seem like the silent type because when she does approach him, he just mutters something underneath his breath. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying that it's you know, completely impossible that they're all the same woman. But I also do think that the way they are all written, it's almost like Dylan wants to portray them all as leading separate lives. It's not impossible that they could all kind of come together as one person. But I think they're very much shown as leading all these different lives. And I think that actually says a lot about the song in the way that it tells a story of the many different lives that we lead. And um, it, it almost seems to me like every time that Dylan returns to the song and rewrites it, he adds more facets to, <laughs> you know, to, the, to the characters and to the people. And um, I think that's really interesting. And then also, I mean, the, the dissociation of the I and the he and I and they and so on. I mean, you know, Dylan is a Gemini and there have definitely been moments in his life and his career where he thought that that was an important uh, component of his of his um, personality. Then, you know, in other interviews, he says, oh, no, it's just a coincidence. But then, you know, we do have a simple twist of fate and shelter from the storm where he talks about being born and being born at a certain time, determining your character. And I, I you know when you're born is obviously related to what astrological sign you are. So I don't know. That's, that's, that's how I see it. Uh, no, I've always figured that at some point that, yeah, you, you realize that he is talking about different women, certainly across the album and maybe, you know, as you said, maybe even specifically this song. And he's talking about, again, he's talking about himself at times and then clearly not other times. I mean, he worked it down and uh, the one day the ax just fell. I mean that, that the guy who's, who has the job where the ax just fell, that seems to seems to be the same guy who had the father whose bank book wasn't big enough because he's kind of living a, a more hard scrabble existence, mm-hmm. kind of going from job to job. And this one day the axe just fell, which is someone who doesn't really clearly have a career. They have more of a job that they can just be fired from yeah. uh, at a moment's notice. Uh, I mean, cl- and then clearly uh, the woman saying, you look like the silent type. Well, no one's going to accuse Bob Dylan of being the silent type. Uh, the guy's been talking endlessly for <laughs> 50 years. Um, the line, I thought you'd never say hello, which is, again, the word hello figures pretty prominently in another one of the songs further on down the yeah, down the true. album of course um and then of course he says like you know porn up of every page like was written in my soul from me to you okay well wait a minute who's the you he's talking to we th- i thought this song was about the the stripper no it's it's not he's talking about this other woman that he's then telling the story to yeah. because this this woman is giving them the book and some people have said is is he are they talking about dante is that who he's referring to dante's uh, dante's inferno uh, right um and then you know and then it's from me to you and so like, okay now we're he's he's telling he's talking to somebody else and it's and i i don't want to jump ahead because we have other versions to discuss but i and there are people who say that they prefer the bootleg series version, the more skeletal version. Mm-hmm. But there's something about this, the, the the mad rush of images, the song that it moves so fast. And I think I even read that it, it's been sped up a little bit, that Dylan actually like literally put it through some machine that sped it up 
ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, it's like this thing moves at such a clip that it's you get you're so lost in where you are at any given point in the song that you just give yourself over to it. I think when the versions, not that I don't like the other versions and we'll talk about them, but like the ones that move slower give you more time to kind of try to unravel it in your mind. But in this one, you're just boom, 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 boom. Things are just coming at you so fast that you just kind of go, okay, I don't know what's happening, but that's okay. Let's just, just, just carry me away, Bob. And, and yeah. the, 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 the instrument, the, the, the musicians are playing at such a great level that I feel that's why this thing works so well. So you're just like, okay, I, you just give yourself over to it. Yeah. It's also really interesting. My, my favorite verse in the, um, in the song, I think is she lit a burner on the stove that, you know, because it has this, I mean, it, it's kind of like the calm center of the song which has this real intimacy of the two of, of the two kind of being in her home, kind of cozy with the stove a bit burning and offered me a pipe also. I mean, apart from the drug reference also has, you know, the symbolism of offering a peace pipe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then she opens up a book of poems and just the imagery here is so much more. I mean, it's, it, it's so beautiful. Uh, Every one of them words rang true and glowed like burning coal, pouring off of every page like it was written in my soul from me to you. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. But also, yes, what you're saying is, you know, she's showing him a book and he relates it from me to you. Um, and then you're wondering, you know, is the you the same woman as the one <laughs> showing showing him the book? And but that's but that's kind of exactly. Um, I, I think the answer is yes and no, because the song is about the enduring relationship between the I and the you, and the the overarching connection that the I and the you have this eternal love story. But the love story plays out in different characters. You know, it's. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's kind of how I see it. It's a story song that tells the you know many life stories with the thread of romance kind of running through. But he has this connection with the you in the shape of different women, and he is also different men, you know, at different points in life, which is kind of what life is, you know, because we we change. And um, I think the fact that Dylan went on to write, rewrite this song more than most other songs of his kind of uh, underlines that point that because he was changing throughout the years, he felt like he had to adjust this song more than any other song to keep singing it. Because I think mm-hmm. that's, that's, what he, that's what he said, you know. It, it didn't feel right, so he wanted to, re, he wanted to rewrite it. And... There aren't that many other songs actually in Dylan's back catalog where he that he's changed so drastically. Can you think of any others where, that he changed quite this much? I know. I mean, simple twist of fate. He's changed a bit, he's but changed, then he but, yeah. but then he kind of went back to the original version. Like he played with it for a while, and then it's yeah. kind of gone back to the other thing. But yeah, there but aren't... aside somebody, he's rewritten quite significantly. And um, I mean, some of the gospel songs I think he's rewritten, but I would almost say for different reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Oh, just intuitively, that makes more sense to me that he to to kind of retain what he wants to say in those songs. He now had to change the language a little bit to, you know, update it to a more general feel or something. 
I mean, it also, it also takes you know guts just to rewrite so drastically a song that you know that a lot of your audience knows. Yeah, you know, it's one thing to rewrite some obscure song that probably only a tiny corner of the audience really is familiar with. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he if he wants to rewrite, going to change my way of thinking. Okay, that's great because most people are, don't know the words to the original version. <laughs> but I mean, you know, you people want to hear the version that they want to hear, and here he is like, wow, this doesn't. I mean, I have been. At, at concerts where Bob has started singing Tangled Up in Blue, and I'm like, wait, what? What is he singing now? I don't. This is not the line that I know, and I got to keep up with it. And that's he does, that's that's the way he likes to to do things. So, um, he moves on to you know he lived with them on Montague Street. So now you've got okay, he's you know, got this other character and Montague Street. There's a Montague Street in Brooklyn. There's one in London. Uh, I, of course, I don't really necessarily take it as a, a literal that he lived on Montague Street. I, it, this certainly seems like a reference to living in the village uh, during the during the incipient folk scene of the early 60s in the basement down the stairs. There was music in the cafes at night, uh, which again, you would have to would think you th- makes you Think of like the Cafe yeah, Wa and all those sure. places that Bob played and Revolution in the Air. Now, I, I have been trying to convey this in different spots when I, when I talk about some uh, film or a song, and I don't think I've ever been able to quite articulate it. And that's that's on me. I've just not been able to find the right words. But there's there's moments in I find in in a, in some songs and films where the person or persons. Uh, creating the art in the moment, uh, managed to convey something that they themselves, I don't think, knew they were conveying. Mm-hmm. And and again, I wish I could. I wish I was more articulate, and then I could explain this. Uh, there are some songs I could think about. There's a there's a, some movies I think about scenes, but this the, the line where he says "revolution in the air" and the way he sings it, this kind of and I'm not going to sing it obviously but he kind of like broadens out his the way he sings his revolution in the air and yeah. to me it conjures up all of the 60s in that one line which is remarkable that it's yeah. it it you feel the energy of what it must have been like to be there at that moment knowing things were changing so rapidly and to be in the middle of it had to be so exciting and just the way he just stretches out the word air revolution in the air and it just he teases it out and it's just that you talk about your favorite line is the the stove is the the stove line this is my favorite line is the yeah. revolution in the air because to me it just it, it I feel like it just puts me in that spot in an area that I've never lived in an, uh, in a time I'll never visit. But I feel like I'm there from that line. It's just remarkable the way he sings it. Yeah. No, it's it's really true. I mean, whether whether he is, in fact, talking about, you know, Greenwich Village or the 60s or whatever, I think that what this line evokes almost transcends time and place. Because yes. you, you, you get the exact idea of what he's singing about. And, uh, you know, no matter what it actually is, I think it's, it's, it's a brilliant line in that way. I completely agree. I, I love it, too. And it's interesting because when I went to the Mondo Scripto exhibition here in London last year, um, that's the one with uh, written lyrics accompanied by drawings. Uh, the version that is in, in that exhibition of Tangled Up in Blue is quite severely rewritten. You already <laughs> mentioned it. And um, there he leaves out that line. And I was, mm. I was standing in front of that, you know, 
piece and I was looking at it and um, I got to talking to the person standing next to me and he was like, you know, it's cool and all, but I just missed the line about revolution in the air. And I could, you know, I couldn't, you know, I can't blame him because obviously we, um, we fall in love with these words and Dylan has this incredible ability to be so uh, not precious mm-hmm. when it comes to mm-hmm. his work and move on. And I mean, you know, obviously in in most cases he records them first, but when, you know, he, he collects all the scraps, you know, the, the Dylan archive in Tulsa has everything, you know, but um, once that is, once it's documented in some way, he's free to move on and try other things. And that includes changing some of his most iconic lines, which I think so many people would not dare to do. But um, I don't know if you have the, the version of Mondoscripta in front of you. I think that one has um, some key lines changed that I think ultimately add up to a totally different song. <laughs> I mean, I agree. He is he is unsentimental uh, when it comes to yes, changing his words. Yes, and that makes me think of the line, kill your darlings, uh, yes. which is, of course, from Allen Ginsberg, who Bob's friends with. And I feel like Bob took is taking that to heart, you know, of like because, again, it, it, it exists. You know, I, I've going, I, I'm going off on a tangent here, but I have some friends that get very, very upset about um, movie remakes when they right. remake like a good movie. Why are they remaking? Blah, 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 blah. And my attitude is always, well, as long as the original film is still accessible to me, they could remake it a million times. I don't care. You know, remake Citizen Kane if you want. You're not going to do it well. But I'm always going to have the Citizen Kane I, I, yeah. I like. And so to me, it's like Bob can rewrite these lines as much as he wants because this version is always there. That I'm never going to not have yeah. the revolution in the air version. If he wants to take it out of the song permanently, that's up to him. But it's not like he's coming into my house and taking the CD from me or anything like that. Yeah. So, you know, do what you want, Bob. It's fine. It's, you know, it's, it's so interesting that you say, that you say this because. I, I don't know if we're allowed to say this. The week that we record this is the week that the Rolling Thunder review film was released right. on Netflix. And because when you were saying this about, you know, movie remakes, immediately I was thinking, well, but the, the, the comparison would actually be if the same director were to remake a film. Right. Mm. Because uh, that's true. That's with, true. With yeah. the kind of like artistic authority to say, like, well, I've done this, but now I'm taking the same material and now I'm doing this. And I mean, spoiler alert, but the Rolling Thunder review film is basically a remaking of Ronaldo and Clara. Or at least <laughs> of the at least of the at least of the same footage, you know? So Dylan it's it, it's it's the same footage for Ronaldo and Clara. And I mean, yes, it was directed by Martin Scorsese, but you cannot tell me that Dylan did not have a real and meaningful artistic input in how the story was being told. Uh, I mean, you know, he's he's there being interviewed, and I think it's easy to then think, well, you know, he's one of the talking heads. But I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Dylan's involvement was a bit bigger than we're me- meant to believe. Uh, well, I mean, him and Scorsese go back a long time. Yeah, They're exactly. obviously very, very good friends, or not very, yeah. very good friends, but obviously very uh, collaborators. I mean, going back all the way to the last waltz. Yeah, so, yeah that wouldn't surprise me at all that Bob yeah. was heavily involved. In and 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 the thing is, when, I mean, this is this is a tangent, um, but I'm 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 currently just kind of trying to organize my thoughts about that film because I'll, I'll try and say something about about the film on the next Stephanie Dillon, and um, which hopefully by the time you hear this, dear listeners, will be out and you can check it out on definitelydillon.com. Um, <laughs> but um, the, 
it, it seems to me like Ronaldo and Clara was the one project that Dylan really poured his energy, his time into that did not re- the one thing that did not receive the critical acclaim um, compared to the other projects that he was that he really believed in. And I think he really cared about that film. And I think it was a big disappointment to him that it kind of missed the mark for a lot of critics. And um, so it would not surprise me if this was a project that Dylan felt like revisiting, not in the sense that it's like a total remake, but that he felt there was maybe some unfinished business that was worth revisiting. That's, that's an interesting idea. Now, as of this record, as of when we were talking, I have not watched the movie yet. <gasps> Uh, oh. I, I know. Well, no, no, no. I, it's not because I'm lazy. It's because I, mm. my, my, my pal Dan Eaker, who I've mentioned on the show, we're watching it together. Cool. Uh, actually, this afternoon, as soon as I am done recording this, I'm going to his house and we're watching it together. All right. No, no, no. That's, I'm having, a, I'm having a good time here. I'm not in any hurry. But, but yeah, yeah, today's t- today's a big Dylan day uh, as. Uh, as as I'm thinking of it, it's a lot of a lot of Bob today. But but yes, um, the the idea that again, like the 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 idea of that he put himself, he put you in this space, the revolution in the air, and uh, it it it's and I mean again, we talk about how much he doesn't get enough credit as what of a good singer he is, and uh, my favorite. Uh, 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 praise of him as a singer came from Paul Simon, where he talked about on the the later show with Bob Costas in the '90s, where he said that he thought Dylan is one of the greatest rock and roll singers ever because yeah. he's able to convey more than one meaning with a with any given line. He says, which is he's literally said, which is extraordinary. Now, yeah. right after that, after the revolution in the air, we get into he started dealing with slaves, and something inside of him died. She had to sell everything she owned and froze up inside. That all of a sudden, the song takes a much darker turn. Yeah, uh, the dealing with slaves, and I don't know about you, Laura. I always feel like that is something involving the record industry, perhaps of of huh. or, or at the very least of being trapped by someone's either their expectations or their literal contract. You know, like yeah. they're they're literally pushed into something they don't want to do. Now again, I don't that doesn't necessarily be the case. But nevertheless, you know that this thing has taken a very, very dark turn to the point where the, the, the singer has got to escape it. And he says the only thing I knew what to do was to keep on keeping on and he gets out of there. And it's it I mean obviously by far it's the darkest verse in this song. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, because, um, you know, now we have several uh, images from the notebooks when he was writing that song. And I thought that verse was actually really interesting because one component that was in many of the sketches but didn't make it into the finished version, nor in any of the rewritings, was Coltrane. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you saw that, but um, Coltrane was showed up in a couple of different lines and he was really trying to work it in. You know, they were listening to Coltrane. And um, I, I suppose in the end, that was the line that had to go. And, you know, Coltrane on... It's not something like Coltrane on the jukebox and Revolution in the Air, but like some, something like that. I, I don't mm. have the... I don't have it in front of me and I don't remember it, but um, it's, it's easy to look up, I think. And yes, I think that switch from Revolution in the Air to... Then he started into dealing with slaves. It's also actually really harsh when you think about it because uh, slavery is, in a sense, almost only reversed through revolution. 
Mm. Yet here we have revolution reversed through slavery, almost. Wow. I never thought of that. But yeah. Huh. And um, I, I read one person said that uh, they thought that the, the slaves could maybe be an allusion to Rambo, who in his later life was a slave holder or a slave dealer or whatever. I don't know. That seems a bit, it seems a bit far-fetched to me. But I will say that I always thought that this line about the slaves was the most obscure one in the entire song. Because mm-hmm. I think all the other songs, even uh, all the other lines, even when they're functioning as metaphors, I think are still really accessible. And that's the only one that I think is a bit obscure. And that I'm not totally sure what to make of. Um, so, but but I th- I think that works too. You just accept it and you kind of take it for whatever it means to you in that very moment. But that's also I think a line that um, shows up in a lot of other a lot of other versions. Um, I think even in the real life version, he's still talking about it. Is it? I think no, actually no. It, it, it disappears after the seventy-five version. Right, right. But yeah, I, yeah. Sorry. Oh no, no. But, but I was just going to talk about. Yeah, you're right. I I agree that of all the lines, it's the one you're the least. Like okay, all right. It's dealing with slaves, and again, you can take that to however it is you want it to be. And then, but then he follows it up with she had to sell everything she owned and froze up inside. And and you know that is something I feel is immediately brings you kind of back a little in terms of the accessibility because I think most people, if you haven't been through this, you're I count yourself lucky. But I think a lot of people have been in relationships where. You know, it's going great in the beginning or it's going great for a long time. And then it then it kind of stops going great. Mm-hmm. And uh, the person freezes up inside. And, you know, that's disconcerting because it's this person you thought you knew. And now all of a sudden they're kind of a different person than they were. And again, it goes back to the themes of this constant different versions of people at any given point. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, again, and, and we don't even the she in this song is. I think a completely different she than any of the other she's we've heard at this point in this yeah. song. Cause this is someone, this is someone who's living with the narrator in Montague street. So again, yeah. we're now we're now we're dealing with yet another whole different set of people that this guy is escaping from and heading out on the road yeah. to get away from them all. I think uh, if you, if you're right with that, let's maybe talk about the Mondo Scripto version for a second, because sure, I, sure. I really, I really think that that one's, I mean, the real life version is also really interesting. If we want to go chronologically, we can also start with that. But I definitely want to talk about the real live version because that's there's some amazing stuff in there too. Let's talk about that first then, because I think the okay. manuscript version. Uh, yeah, I mean, not that we have to go chronologically, but I think the manuscript version is especially interesting to consider as something that was written really recently. But yeah, tell me what, what you think about the real life version. I love real it. Live, yeah, the real live version that appeared on the, the 1984 uh, live album, which, and not to be harsh, I feel like it's really the only reason to buy that record. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think most of the versions of the songs are pretty pretty lackluster, except for this. This thing pops out at you, and it's Bob by himself. It's a yeah. total acoustic version. And the, the, the verse in this, there's the one section in here uh, is just... I'm just I when the first time I heard it, I was simply floored that a he could write something. Well, I shouldn't say I'm floored that he writes something as brilliant because of course he can. Yeah. But the fact that he could 
Write it again. <laughs> F- write it again. Uh, it's just unbelievable. And it's the line about where he says, she was married to me when they first met to a man four times her age. He left her penniless in a state of regret, which is what a great, you know, turn yeah. of phrase, in a state of regret. Most people are left in a you know literal state, but she's left in a state of regret. It was time to bust out of the cage. And they drove that car as far as they could, abandoned it out west, bringing up on a dark night, both agreeing that it was best. She turned around to look at him as he was walking away, saying, wish i could tell you all the things that i never learned how to say he said that's all right baby i love you too but we were tangled up in blue and i mean that i just i I get chills when i read that and the audience you can hear them react to it yeah yeah yeah. they they know that they just heard something amazing the idea and and for for a dark song i mean for a, a song about pain and heartache there's something so warm about saying wish i could tell you all the things that I never learned how to say. And then the other person knowing what that person is trying to convey mm-hmm. and, and jumping in and saying, that's all right, baby. I love you too. Mm-hmm. We were t- just, it's so effing beautiful. <laughs> I just can't believe it. And it's worth the record to own just for this version. Yeah. I also think it's, it offers an explanation of how they are splitting up. It, it offers a different look at the situation than the earlier versions because mm-hmm. in the other versions, you know, they're saying, you know, we'll meet again someday on the avenue tangled up in blue. And you're kind of thinking, well, but why are they, why are they splitting up in the first place? You know, why, why are they breaking up? You know, that, that is a question that we never, that, that's never answered. Right. And I think, and I think in this version, we get a different angle on that situation. We still don't know why they're breaking up, but we do know that there is unfinished business there and that there is love there, which I think is really, it, it, it's really compelling in a different way than the earlier version is compelling. Yeah. Again, again I was always so amazed. And the, I, I bought Real Life, Real Live right around the time when I was really getting into Bob and I was just gobbling everything up as far as I could. And it was, it was really one of the things that made me just fall in love with him so hard Mm -hmm. in that it was like, wow, he has the ability to do this. He has ability to take a song that I already think is brilliant and then put new lines in it. And the the new lines are just amazing. And he himself was very, actually uh, pretty vociferous uh, or loquacious, I should say uh, about the real live version. And he said, on real live, Tangled Up in Blue is more like it should have been. I was yeah. never really happy with it. I guess I was just trying to make it like a painting where you can see the different parts, but then you also see the whole of it. With that particular song, that's what I was trying to do. With the concept of time and all the way the characters change from the first person to third person, and you're never quite sure if the third person is talking or the first person is talking, but as you look at the whole thing, it doesn't really matter. On real live, the imagery is better and more the way I would have liked it than on the original recording. Wow. That's, I mean, that's a great quote. On the other hand, I also, um, I, I don't know. I don't want to say I don't believe him, but um, <laughs> it's, the, the thing is, to me, it almost seems like this project of making the song like a painting is an ongoing one. And he, mm-hmm. is, he is still working on that in, in rewriting it constantly. And it's almost like the, the, you know, we were talking about the definitive version of the song. Maybe the definitive version of the song is all the versions together. Just like the version of the you and the version of the I is many different people. And so the version of this, of this song is all the different versions of the song taken together. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that could be that too. You know, that it's it's, a it's all you know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's all the versions in his head that's been that been rolling around. It's it, it's and it's sort of funny too that if he thought this version was so perfect, maybe not perfect, but that he never really went back to it. As far as I've heard, like I haven't. I've all the times I've ever heard Tangled Up in Blue in concert, he's never sang these lines. Yeah. Yeah, that's so why you would I don't think believe, he would go back to it. But that's why I don't totally believe him. I mean Right. <laughs> you know. But you know Wait a minute, are you saying Bob Dylan is being deceptive, Laura? Uh, <laughs> uh have fun watching the Rolling Thunder review film. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, I think the, the, the real life version has some fantastic lines. I mean, what I what I love is how he completely rewrites the line that's happening in that topless place. Yeah. Um, because there he sings. It, it's, it's a very similar story, but he tells it in, a, in completely different words. He's singing, she was working in the blinding light and I stepped in for a drink. I just kept looking at her face so white, I didn't know what to think. And later on, as the crowd thinned out, I was getting ready to leave. And she was standing there beside my chair saying, what's that you got up your sleeve? I said, nothing, baby. And that's for sure. She leaned down into my face. I could feel the heat and the pulse of her as she bent down to tie the laces of my shoe tangled up in blue. Mm. And I mean, again, this this bristling chemistry that's in the line, um, I could feel the heat and the pulse of her. I mean, I love that so, line. The pulse that's so of her. tangible. You know, it's visceral yeah. in a way that the earlier version isn't. The earlier version has sexual tension in a different way because, um, I mean, I find the album version super interesting because he talks about a topless place that he stops in for a beer, but then it's immediately followed up by saying, um, I just kept looking at the side of her face. Yeah. You know, he's in a topless place, but he looks at a, but he's looking at a face, <laughs> um, which I mean is telling. You know, he's, he, I mean, in that way, he's kind of like trying to describe his, his connection with that woman that somehow goes beyond what other people get from her, right? And what right. other people see in her, and she kind of reciprocates that by studying the lines on his face. You know, and. Um, the connection is made in a way that is, on the one hand, really visceral, but also almost, you know, transcendent, you know, and it's not as lusty as you would expect in this place. But then we have that line about, you know, bending down to tie the laces of his shoe, which a lot of people read, like, as super suggestive. Um, but it could also be, you know, exactly subversive of that ex- expectation of what could happen in a place like that. But like maybe she's really just like helping him, you know, helping him out in the sense that, you know, with, with like something really real and, you know, that he needs to kind of go on with his life, like tying the laces of his shoes, such a mundane thing. But um, he, he's a bit of a mess and she's helping him out, you know. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I might as well read you the, the verse from Mondo Scripto, uh, how, how he writes it, he rewrites it there. Um, because there he sings, uh, he doesn't sing at all, he writes, um, she was working at the Moonlight Lounge where men put money in her hand. There's always been a certain truth about money that I never did understand. You put things to bed and you call it a day. Sometimes you go along for the ride. You rack your brains and you bury the hatchet. Then you walk on the wild side. (laughs) 
Towns are ruined and cities burn and images disappear. Weep with all your heart, if you will. I too cried a tear. Nothing you can do if you're tangled up in blue. Uh, <laughs> I want to hear him sing that so bad. Uh, but so different. I mean, that's a different song. <laughs> it is. The connection, it completely is. The connection with that, I mean, the woman, you know, it's almost like he goes to the Moonlight Lounge, he sees a woman, but then he doesn't follow up on that connection at all. Instead, goes right. on a tangent talking about the world. You know, there's always been a certain truth about money that I never understand. I was reading that earlier and it really reminded me of another line. I'm trying to remember where it's from, maybe from Mask and Anonymous, where he also talks about like, something that he never did understand. Mm. Uh, I, I should have I should have researched that. Maybe, maybe I'll still think about it. But um, it's definitely, don't you agree, such a different song. Yeah, no, it's complete. Right, it's complete. Yeah, the whole thing about the money I didn't understand. I mean, that's it's. It is funny to me about how much money figures into this song. I mean, again, we're yeah. going back to think about Papa's bank book wasn't big enough. Yeah. I mean, it's which is the manuscript version as well. Right, but, right, and he, yeah, and he, again, he works. He works in the original version. He works at a job where you know the the axe just fell, and it's that that that's something that figures in a lot. And that's I always try and. Like, is, does Bob I, – I mean, Bob is a working man. I mean, he sees himself as a working man. I mean, yeah. obviously, he's fabulously wealthy. But at the same time, he does work for – hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. I mean, but, he, you know, he works very hard for the money. I mean, he's out there every day. He's pushing himself. And, again, he's out there doing 100 shows a year for a 78-year-old man. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm exhausted just thinking about yeah. it. And I'm, I'm 30 years younger than he is. But, uh, but yeah, it's – that is remarkable of how much it completely recasts – the song at the end with those new versions and again that's i would for the mondo script i gotta i wonder is like is that just did he i mean is this the version in his head will, will, will we ever hear him sing this version when I he's i mean he's do, is he doing the song now in, in tour i don't believe that he is i'm i've definitely heard him sing some of the lines in the mondo script version i didn't go back to compare recent bootlegs uh with this version but i know that he definitely sings some of these lines in concert. I'm not sure if he sings all of them, but a lot of them. The thing is, is that that really strikes me about the Mondo Scripta version, um, because my favorite verse about she lit a burner on the stove, he leaves that one out in the Rolling Thunder version, and he leaves it out in the real life version. Right. And um, I think I think he did sing it um, in the '78 on the '78 World Tour. He did sing it there. Um, but he definitely has left that verse out of other versions. So for some for some reason that seems to be like the the just the, the one that's optional. Um, but it is back in the um, in the Mondoscripto version, and there he sings. She lit a burner on the stove and swept away the dust. You look like somebody I used to know. She said, someone I used to trust. Mm. Then she opened up a book of poems and she said, just so you'll know. Memorize these lines and remember these rhymes when you're walking to and fro. <laughs> it's, it's so strange. He almost becomes a teacher in in. Uh... Uh. <laughs> I guess the woman is always kind of a teacher in that verse, actually, in how she how she opens up the book of poems and you know shows him this poetry that really resonates with him. It's interesting. She is kind of like a teacher, like. I also that 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 whole sequence too makes me think of um of course again like he he's he, when he meets the woman um he she's stripping you know and of course in 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 most in one people's, of the verses 
One of the one of the verses, right? And it yeah. might not be the same woman as the poetry woman, right? Right, <laughs> right. We don't, we don't know, yeah. but I mean, it's in, in my mind, it is. Like I say, that it is, and, okay. and of course, when you're seeing the woman in a topless place, that's the the uh, the idea. At least you have is that she's vulnerable. Um, that she's, uh, you know, that she's, she's walking around half naked in front of a bunch of leering men or whatever. And there's a, there's a vulnerability there, um, that is, is depending on your point of view could, is, could be a little off putting. Um, and, and then, but yet uh, when she goes back with him to wherever they go and she lights the stove and she gives him a book of poems and I don't, I don't know about you, Laura, I'm betting you've had this experience. I know I have where, you meet someone for the maybe not the first time, but you're meeting somebody new. You have somebody new in your life and you start sharing with them things mm-hmm. that you like. That's you being vulnerable because yeah. you're kind of giving them this thing and saying, I think this thing is good. I think this thing is worth your time. And you're kind of hoping that they don't reject it Yeah, yeah. because well, if they do, it can be very hurtful. So to me, it's very funny that he's inverted. She's be to me. She's being more vulnerable by giving him the book of poems than she is by going around topless. Because yeah. in a lot of ways, someone being topless, if they if they're comfortable being topless, they're not being vulnerable at all. You're the one who's kind of gobsmacked by looking at somebody half naked. But the the person might be like, I don't care. I don't care yeah. if you look at me. But I have given people books and movies to enjoy, and I there's some part of me that's like, boy, I really hope they like this because if they don't, yeah. they might look bad on me or something. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. I do think that that's something, um, there is something that connects the woman in the verse of the, of the topless place and the poetry verse uh, in, in, in that way. I, I completely agree. Personally, I mean, I, I always saw that the woman in the pop, topless place, I always saw her in a position of power because of how he responds to her. Mm-hmm. Because when... Um, she walks up to him and says, you know, she was standing there in back of my chair, said to me, don't I know your name? He, his response is, he mutters something underneath his breath, you know, he's, <laughs> he's completely, you know, he feels a little uneasy, you know, he's completely taken by surprise. So um, I always had the feeling that um, the woman in that verse is very confident Um almost surprisingly confident because, yeah, maybe like your immediate association with a topless place is, you know, a nakedness that is maybe also, uh, you know, figurative, not just literal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think th- that is almost a subversion in this in this particular verse that um, although the woman might be half naked, she is actually, you know, in in charge of how the uh, interaction is going. Right. And, right. Um, and yeah, I think the I I completely know what you mean about making oneself vulnerable in sharing something that means a lot to you. But I also really think that she takes on a teacher role in that moment where um, she shows him something that kind of like blows his mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The words burning on the yeah, burning in the like you know yeah. Yeah, she's the she's the one with all the action in the. I mean, just if you look at the words, right? She's the one that has all the action. She lights a burner on the stove. Stove. She offers him him a pipe. She says something to him. He's the one that's just being described as a silent type. And then she offers up a book of poems and hands it to him. So he's completely passive in this mm-hmm. in, in that mm-hmm. verse. Similar to the the previous verse as well, which I think is why I have also always assumed that it's the same two people, but it's only really 
today that I've had this thought that it might not be the same person. And but I, I think ultimately that is less important because they are they are all kind of like the same you, but they are, they also live separate lives. I mean, I think I've said that a couple of times now, but it's only because I'm only just articulating it for myself and kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, almost explaining to myself what, I, what I'm all of a sudden seeing in the song. But um, the, um, the, the next line that kind of switches again quite radically to this, you know, living together, this domestic space, all of a sudden, you know, where where things are at first kind of homely and happy and then go horribly awry, you know. Um, I think it's also quite interesting how that changes in the rewritings. Um, I mean, I think the real life version is actually not that different. It just says there was snow all winter and no heat. Revolution was in the air. Mm-hmm, right. Then one day all of his slaves ran free and something inside of him died. So this is different, right? Like here he already has slaves. And what's going wrong is that his slaves run free and something inside of him died. The only thing I could do was be me and get on that train and ride. Um, And when it all came crashing down, I was already south. I didn't know whether the world was flat or round. I had the first taste in my mouth that I ever knew tangled up in blue. I think that's great. I love the flat. I didn't know whether the world was flat or round. That's that's amazing. And I mean, it's also really uh, something that we haven't really talked about at all, but the song is also in all incarnations so expertly written with all the internal rhymes um yeah yeah i mean they just the the way the language works is on so many levels and it's almost like you could almost imagine that dylan also just kept returning to that song because it was so much fun to write uh, to play with internal rhymes and kind of making the lines fit and i mean what i said earlier about um the verse in the topless place changing so drastically in the real life version, even though he's still essentially telling the same story, but you know, he doesn't stop in for a beer. He stops in for a drink, you know? So what needs to change in the verse from that point onwards, if it's not a beer, but a drink, you know, it's, <laughs> um, and he's looking not at the side of her face, but her face so white, you know, all of that changes the rhyme words and, what they can do in the story, but essentially he's telling a very similar story. So I, I could imagine that he was also just having a good time uh, revisiting the story told in that song and telling it again, you know, but just slightly differently with slightly different colors. You know, he's still working on the painting of that song, but it's just with slightly different colors. And um, I think this is something that's also in the Mondo Scripto version where. I think there's also a little joke in the, the next verse where he talks about um, he had, I lived with them on State Street. And first of all, what you immediately figure out is so all the lyrics for Mondo Scripta were written on this quote unquote stationary paper. It looks like hotel stationary paper, <laughs> but in fact, it's um, it's from a company called Black Buffalo, and there's a letterhead of Black Buffalo at the top of the page. And um, Black Buffalo is the company that's associated with Dylan's Ironworks. Oh, okay. Um, they, they all have uh, inscriptions of um, Black Buffalo. And then at the bottom of the page, you have an address in Dayton, Ohio, and a phone number. And um, if you, it's, it's very interesting. If you call the phone number, uh, someone actually picks up 
I, I don't know. Have you ever done it? Have you ever done it? No, I haven't. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty funny. So if you call it, um, it's an answering machine, and it says, oh, you're, ca you're calling Black Buffalo. Uh, we can't come to the phone right now, but if you leave a message, uh, you know, we'll get back to you or something like that. It's, it's, it's very fun, and it, it just, again, makes you realize that Dylan thinks all these things through. And he knows that people will be looking for all these little... Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, knows, he knows that there are all these fans like you and me that will overthink every single detail. <laughs> and he's, but he's sending us on a wild goose chase, but there is something there for us at the other end. You know? I, yeah, I love the old timiness of the Black Buffalo stationery because there's no web address. It's, yeah, exactly. you know? yeah, and but the address in Dayton, Ohio, is seven two two one State Street. Yep, which doesn't exist. There is no seven. Oh, really? In Dayton, Ohio, <laughs> which is which is also fun. But then, oh, Bob. <laughs> but then, in Tangled Up in Blue, he writes, "I lived with them on State Street." Oh, wow! You know, so that shows up again. So you can tell that um, he. It's not willy-nilly, you know. He connects all these red threads in some way. But then he writes, I lived with him on State Street, above the candy store. I tried my best, but I never did make it up to the top floor. I saw the world for what it was, lived from hand to mouth, again with the money thing. Mm -hmm. um, my eyes could see for a thousand miles. My window was facing the south. Sometimes I think I'd been better off if I'd never laid eyes on her. Love grows cold and faces get old and nothing stays for sure. You too might be tangled up in blue. Oof. So um, this is, I mean, this is really interesting because again, like the previous verse, uh, or like the, the two verses before about the Moonlight Lounge, he takes it away from this um, love story. And he essentially sings more generally about his view of the world. Um and he and even like the, the the verse before about the big book of poetry it's no longer about personal connection so much it's almost he she's giving him something to uh you know words to live by mm -hmm. and and you know uh, memorize these lines and remember these rhymes when you're walking to and fro and it's the same here too he's almost just generally giving us his view of life at this later point uh, in his in his life, you know, in his seventies, he, you know, he sees the world for what it was, which I think is is really interesting and and tells us so much about him no longer trying to figure out these things, but he's saying, you know, I figured it out, guys. I see the world for what it was, and you know, my eyes could see for a thousand miles. He's a completely different person now, you know. He's no longer. Uh, keeping on keeping on you know he's he sees the world for what it was and um then uh, you know i'm now i'm going back again i've got to get to them somehow not her yesterday is dead and gone tomorrow might as well be now again there's not much to kind of look forward to he's kind of arrived at a at somewhere some of them went up the mountain some of them some of them down in the ground some of their names written in flames. Some of them just left town. Me, I'm still on the road, trying to stay out of the joint. We always did feel the same, depending on your point of view, tangled up in blue. 
It's almost like here he's not singing about the woman. He's singing directly to us. Mm -hmm. Did you get that too? That's kind of the feeling that I get in that moment saying, you know, we always did feel the same depending on your point of view, which means everything and nothing. Right. 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 It's almost like, you know, we always did feel the same if you agree with me, (laughs) you know, but if you don't, you know, we don't feel the same. Yeah, this, this I would I would argue. Yeah, this version is more like all encompassing. Yeah, uh, it is less a love song. And again, you have to think that it's at seventy eight or seventy seven whenever he wrote this, or who know, maybe he's been working on this for years or something. But yeah, he's probably got a more you know broader view of life because he's it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. You know, yeah. and he probably has that. Um, I do want to mention that there is this great turn again. I mean, we're reading the whole Mondo script thing, but it is so interesting. Because we're working at the Great North Woods, so there the Great North Woods are back again. Yeah. Where the treetops touched the sky. Yeah. The days were short, the nights were long, and the mornings passed me by. Uh, then I drifted down to New Orleans. Something was happening there. By the time I got to town, everyone gets somewhere everyone everybody gone somewhere everybody gone somewhere okay but i mean i love the treetops touch the sky i mean it's able to conjure such vivid imagery uh seemingly at will is just again i I have this this. i have this really strange association um with that and i have to quickly look this up um because there's a um poem by uh, John Wilmot, Earl of Rochester. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Um, no, no. He's like um, 18th century restoration poetry. He wrote the most dirty and filthy poetry. It's, I mean, it makes you blush reading it. Huh. Uh, it's very, um, it's, it's very interesting. The, the poem is "A Ramble in St James's Park," um, and he sings. Whence rows of mandrakes tall did rise, whose lewd tops fucked the very skies. Wow. <laughs> and like for some reason, I was reminded of that when he says the treetops touched the skies. It's almost like a very censored version of that poem. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I, I'm not saying that he um, that he took it from there, but I mean, we know Bob Dylan, and it's also not completely impossible that he did channel that in some ways. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, sure. Yeah, so nothing is, I, yeah. You know, John Wilmot, Earl of Rochester, is not necessarily someone who has been talked about in context with Bob Dylan. I'm also not sure if there are any other connections, but in this particular line, because it's such a striking imagery, right? The treetops mm-hmm. touch the sky. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's it's definitely more beautiful than the uh, John Wilmot uh, version. But, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I, just thought I, I just thought I'd put that out there. And other people can make of that what they will. We'll see. Who knows? Maybe, you know, Bob's listening and he's like, yeah, she figured it out. That's where I got that from. I got um, a gold medal. Me and Scott Wormuth <laughs> get the medals for figuring out stuff. <laughs> um, so I want to wind back. Now we're going to zip around. I want to wind back to the, even before the original, before the album version. I'm going to go back to the version in New York. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, that are on the Bootleg series. Because, of yeah. course, that's very, very different. It's much more skeletal, much more ghost-like. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, the, the words are mostly there. There are some differences that he talks about when he drifted down to LA where he reckoned to try his luck working for a while in an airplane plant, loading cargo onto a truck. Uh, A lot, there are people who really apparently like these versions. And I think it was, he had played these versions for 
some of his friends like Joni Mitchell and and uh, Larry David, Sloman, I think was one Larry Sloman, and yeah. they said that they like these versions better. What is your what's your overall view of the of the the bootleg series version that we heard, the ones he did in New York? I mean, I think I think they're great. I think they're beautiful. I think um, personally, I think did have made the right choice to go into Minneapolis and re-record half of the album because as an album, it it plays in, in a, a still very coherent way. But I also think there's just more going on when you have those slightly more upbeat and slightly fuller versions from Minneapolis. And I'm going to tell you the main reason why I am glad that he revisited those songs. Um, and that is the song Idiot Wind because mm. I love the New York version for many different reasons. I think the tone that he has in his singing is beautiful. Um, I think it, it channels a very different emotion than the Minneapolis version. It has this deep sadness, uh, whereas the, the Minneapolis version is more kind of anger. But on the other hand, and it's strange to me that it hasn't been uh, talked about more. The Minneapolis version has more verses than the New York version. I'm pretty sure Edith Wind is the song that has been rewritten the most out of the Blood on the Track songs um, in between the two sessions. And the some of my favorite lines that Dylan has ever written, which is the um, down the highway, down the tracks, down the road to ecstasy, I followed you beneath the stars, hounded by your memory and all your raging glory. That entire verse is not in the New York version. Right. That was added later. And I think, I mean, I know we're not talking about Idiot Wind. We're talking about Tangled Up in Blue. But um, I, I think, in a way, the rewriting of Idiot Wind is symbolic of the emotional process that Dylan must have undergone in between the two sessions. And I think that's reflected in the, the, the way he recorded the songs in Minneapolis. And that is that uh, he had some time to sit on these recordings, uh, on these performances of the songs, you know, not just the, the, the written words, but also the way he sung them. And at least in the case of Idiot Wind, he revisited it and put in another verse that almost worked as a, a way of resolving the emotions because the entire song Idiot Wind is very much kind of accusatory and saying, you know, oh, you know, all these things happened and, you know, now you don't know me anymore and, uh, you know, what am I going to do? But then in that, um, in those later verses, he starts taking on some of the blame. Right. Which ultimately works towards a song that is so much more profound in portraying the falling apart of a relationship because he manages to get to the point where he says, yes, you did all these things, but actually maybe I share some of the blame. And then we arrive at that point where he sings, we're idiots, babe. It's a wonder we can even feed ourselves. And you believe him that he's gotten to that point. You know, you, you, you're with him on that journey because he has worked through his emotions to arrive at that point. And I think, um, Likewise, in Tangled Up in Blue, I think there is now a there are now different emotions in the Minneapolis version. Um, there's it's more upbeat. It's more yeah. It, it, it's kind of he, he takes us along for the ride in a different way rather than just telling us a story. I think you know the version propels us forward in a way that the New York session uh, version doesn't. 
And that's right. it I, works for the song that is all about this telling the story that is driving and kind of like drags us through these different timelines. And so right on a on a more on a more just prosaic level, uh, the, the the Minneapolis version is peppier, yeah. uh, and and as an as an album exactly. opener, you want that kind of. I would think that this version, the one on the Bootleg series, while I think is is great, it's it's much sadder, it's much more forlorn, and I don't know if that, if it would if it opens the record if it quite prepares you for nine more songs like this. You know, yeah. I, I think you're kind of like, OK, I mean, one of the bigger verse changes uh, from the New York version is, is in verse six where he sings, um, he was always in a hurry, too busy or too stoned and everything that she ever planned just had to be postponed. He thought they were successful. She thought they were blessed with objects and material things. But I never was impressed. Mm-hmm. There, there's kind of a sourness to that with the I never was impressed. Like he, the, the, the narrator is setting himself apart like, wow, these two just thought they were great. But I was never. It's just, yeah. it, there's a kind of like, you know, quite sneering attitude that I think it works as an alternate. But I yeah, I mean, ultimately, I wouldn't trade the Minneapolis version for for literally almost anything. In, in, yeah, in we don't career. have slaves in that version, which is interesting, I think. Mm. Um, you know, so last week I spoke to Jeff Slate, who wrote the liner notes for More Blood, More Tracks. And we obviously had to talk a little bit about that bootleg series and his work on it. And it was he said something that kind of made me think he was saying, well... With the New York sessions, it was almost like Dylan went into the studio ready to do another freewheeling Bob Dylan, you know, kind of all acoustic, and but then decided to redo it. And um, I, you know, our conversation kind of moved on, and I it didn't get around to saying that to him. But what what I immediately have to think of is not freewheeling. I immediately think, because Dylan went into the studio with all these songs ready to be recorded, all of them written down, very little got changed in the studio, at least during the New York sessions, you know, everything was kind of set, the lyrics in his notebooks and so on, which makes me think that the New York sessions were a lot more similar to John Wesley Harding than anything like Freewheeling. Yeah, because, yes, because yes. Because Freewheeling was recorded over the course of a year or so, whereas uh, John Wesley Harding was written, I mean, from all we know, in a pretty, you know, confined time, uh, yeah, like and recorded in like two days uh, practically. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I I also spoke to Michael Chaken, the the curator of the Bob Dylan archive, and he said that um, there's so little in the way of outtakes from John Wesley Harding because no take, um, no song received more than four takes, and wow. I think um, that's interesting. And the New York sessions, uh, it it is interesting to see them in the. Um, same vein as John Wesley Harding from uh, for a couple of reasons because um, John Wesley Harding was so stark and so simplistic and so naked and raw, uh, minimalist as well in its instrumentation, coming off the heels of Blonde on Blonde, so it was completely unexpected. But in a in a way, it was still in kind of saying, well, you know, now I'm doing a serious album, uh, and I think. Then afterwards, he kind of went and tried a bunch of different things. I mean, uh, I know that the albums uh, between John Wesley Harding and uh, Blood on the Tracks, they have uh, the, the reputation of being a bit patchy. But on the other hand, if you look at what they actually are, it's Dylan in a relatively short amount of time trying out a bunch of different genres 
mm-hmm. and different approaches to recording and having a ton of fun doing it. So you have, you know, the country of Nashville skyline that's kind of recorded with session musicians, uh, lighthearted. Then you have self-portrait and new morning on which he does everything from, you know, the gospel of three angels to standards on uh, self-portrait, uh, including overdubs of brass and all that kind of stuff <laughs> that he hadn't done before. Then you have like scat singing on, uh, if dogs run free, you know, the, the then you have Dylan and the band reuniting for Planet Waves, which had some amazing songs, but also a ton of stuff that was obviously written in the studio. You know, kind of uh, them just having fun. I mean, you, you cannot tell me that something like You Angel You that, that Dylan poured over that, you know, in advance. I, I <laughs> He was, you know, he was having fun and he was like making up something. I mean, well, he maybe had parts of it, but he was also kind of, Sounds to me making it up. And then he goes into the studio with these songs that he had written and finished before going into the studio. And it's almost like he was saying, okay, now let's strip it all back again. I want to do, you know, just something really minimalist. Uh, And if you listen to the New York sessions, the bass player all but sounds like the bass player on John Wesley Harding. And I'm pretty sure I even uh, read that, um, whatever his name is, I cannot remember it right now, I'm drawing a blank, but the bass player on the New York sessions was also uh, channeling the bass player on John Wesley Harding. So uh, long story short, I think there are a lot of parallels between the New York sessions and John Wesley Harding, which could also maybe explain why Dylan then said, well, but haven't I done that album before? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like... It's, <laughs> like that amusing story where Dylan said uh, he was asked in interviews after Bruce Springsteen uh, released Nebraska and he was asked uh, oh you know isn't that something that you might maybe want to do you know when are you going to do your Nebraska and he's like well you know it's a great album but I've, I've done that album a couple of times already <laughs> uh, you know and I think to me it always intuitively made a ton of sense that he went back in and re-recorded it especially in the light of what we do actually hear on the bootleg series, More Blood, More Tracks, where, uh, which paints quite a different picture from what the session musicians were saying before, which kind of made it sound like, oh, you know, the, uh, and the producer, oh God, I, I should have, I should have uh, refreshed all my names, uh, the producer of the New York sessions. Ellen Bernstein, or, or well, there was Phil Ramone was there, but Ellen Bernstein was the Phil Phil, Phil Ramone is the, is the guy that I'm, I'm talking about because he was saying, oh, you know, how could he do this? Everything was so perfect in the New York sessions, but when we listen to the Bootleg series, we do actually hear that Dylan struggle with the bands and you know them not you know it not quite gelling. You know, it's not sounding right. That's why Dylan dismissed the uh, the band after the first couple of takes and then just stuck with uh, the bass player for most of the rest of the tracks. And right, yeah, he had mostly the whole that band deliverance with him and then like it was like one by one he was getting rid of them all. Yeah, like, exactly. You know? and, and, and so I think um, all of that kind of shows us that maybe Dylan wasn't all that happy with the outcome and of course it's beautiful because that at that point in time Dylan was, you know, at one of his peaks as a performer and so he could have sung anything and it would have been an incredible performance but that doesn't mean that 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 the sound overall was necessarily what he was shooting for you know and just because that's also great doesn't mean that you know 
he wasn't maybe envisioning something slightly different for the album as a finished product. So, right. I mean, we hear it and we we judge it on on you know, as it's delivered to us, but it might be very different from what he wanted to hear. And to us, it's like, well, no, it's perfect. Don't mess with it. But it's to him, it's like that's not what I was going for. I may have achieved greatness in this other respect. But that wasn't what I was going for. And so, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I don't know how much uh, – I mean, you can make a whole boot, you can make a whole blood on the tracks with just these alternate versions. And I will – to my dying day, I will say that the more blood, more tracks set was worth it just for that one version of you're going to make me lonesome with you go. Oh, you yeah. Because it makes me tear up every time I hear it. It's so beautiful. I but um, But I, 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 I like this version. But I, to me, it's like if leading off with it and then going right into Simple Twist of Fate, which is an even sadder song. Mm-hmm. I don't know if at some point I'd be like, oh, my God, like you really, you're really, uh, you know, making me feel really bad, Bob. And, and, you know, then not that that doesn't have that's time out of mind is that. And I love that record. But the exhilaration of that Minneapolis take is just so intoxicating Yeah, but also- uh, that I just would never want to lose it. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree. It, it really, yeah, intoxicating, I think, is absolutely the right word. It's like there's a headiness yeah. uh, you, when you listen to it. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. But I was going to say that time out of mind, all those heavy songs also only really work because you have stuff like Dirt Road Blues to kind mm-hmm. of lighten the mood in between a little bit. Imagine if you only had, like, Standing in the Doorway, Not Dark Yet, Lovesick, uh and then topped off with Highland. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it, it would be a, a much heavier, I mean, it's still a very heavy album, but I think uh, Dylan intuitively knows how to put together an album that works as an album. Yes. And, oh, yes. yes. And, and, you know, sometimes to the, you know, disappointment of, of fans who say, oh, why didn't he put Blind Willie McTell on the record? But, you know, Maybe that just wasn't part of the album that he wanted to make at that point for whatever yeah. reason, you know. And that's I, I mean, I do really think with Dylan as an artist, I always tend to give him the benefit of the doubt because I I trust his artistic vision, and that doesn't mean that sometimes they there aren't other ways of doing it and other ways where I kind of think you know well. If he had put Abandoned Love on Desire instead of Joey, uh, <laughs> you know, that to me seems like a good thing. You know, it seems to me like that would have made the album better. But, you know, ultimately, you don't know, you know, you don't know what was in his mind when he made that decision. But we just have to kind of roll with it. And I mean, you know, we don't have to. And a lot of people don't. But I, I personally just choose to um, try to see try to understand what he was trying to go for with that before I then think of what I would have done. Because, um, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, Bob Dylan is Bob Dylan and I am me. And we have different, and you know, there's a reason why all these albums are Bob Dylan albums and not Laura Tinted albums. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, um, and, and, and that's, and that is when it comes down to it, also the reason why I think it was the right choice um, to, you know, for him to go and re- re-record half the album for Blood on the Tracks because 
it's easy for, for uh, it's easy for us in hindsight to say, yeah, well, but the the New York sessions would also, you know, are also beautiful. But we're saying that as people who know the Minneapolis versions, right? Exactly. We have the context we, of comparing yeah, them. Yeah, we can, we can never tell how the album would have been received, how we would have received the album, if we if that's the only thing that we know, because very few people heard that album of only the New York sessions before they heard the album as it ended up getting released. So I think it's in in a way, I think it's a moot point to, um, to discuss, you know, whether it was the right choice or not, because we, we can't possibly see that choice for what it was at that moment in time. We can only see it in hindsight. And we should, uh, yeah, yeah. We should be lucky. I think that so much of Bob's career took place before the advent of, uh, what I would call toxic fandom, where we have this fandom now where these people that who love a thing so much, they now say they own it and yeah. they get to direct it as they want. And if someone errs in even the slightest direction in a way they don't want, it's uh, out with the death threats. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, those people need to go away hard. And Bob has Bob is Bob. And Bob is his, his attitude is you can accept it. And if you don't. Move on. And, uh, you know, you, all of us, I like to think the, 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 you know, an actual fan say, yeah, well, we just accept it and we can yeah. criticize it. We can say, well, wait, really, the when, what, you really put that version of when the night comes falling from the sky on the record, Bob. But ultimately, who else is going to make the decision but, yeah. but him himself? I mean, well, and so it's the it's, only it's thing up, I could do is be me, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Get on that train and ride. I guess it was up to me, you know? I mean, he, he, he tells us all that stuff in, in, song you know and um it's it's i I think you're absolutely right about toxic fandom Uh, the other day i was saying to my robert um about rolling the rolling thunder review film and i said you know i think it's really interesting to see so far all the reactions have been so overwhelmingly positive and he said yeah well but that's because you're only reading like the fan responses. And I said, Oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> those are the harshest ones. <laughs> yeah. Know, usually, yeah. Uh, th- those are the ones that would come out with the, uh, with the criticisms. And I'm sure there will be some criticism. And I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not a perfect uh, film maybe, but it's pretty damn good. You know? Yeah. Uh, I said, it's, I, I, again, I learned a long time ago that I just, He's going to do what he's going to do, yeah. and I can have my opinions of it and and move on. But I, you know, I should I should not have any input as to what I, I and I don't, and none of us should. We can just talk about it and, and appreciate it, which is again what the whole point of this show is. Yeah. Um, before we sign off, because we said we've been talking for almost two hours now, Ooh, I did what? want to mention um, the the live versions. This has been performed <laughs> sixteen hundred and eighty five times. Wow. Over the course of from nineteen seventy five through two thousand eighteen, which was the last time I have seen him do it a couple of times, and every time I've seen him do it. It is very self-consciously a rave up. It is a let's get the crowd on their feet. This is everybody knows this song. And I remember one time I saw it where it it, it had a performative. Well, not that. Of course it did. It's a concert. But it had an an extra level of sort of uh, performative kind of thing to it because he got the whole band to stand on the lip of the stage. Uh, of course, not the drummer, of course, but everybody else, Garnier and Bucky Baxter, or whoever else, standing at the lip of the stage, pointing their instruments into the audience. And of course, they're all dressed like gangsters. Yeah. And as the song is sort of raving up and getting sort of louder and louder and faster and faster, it has that kind of like 
this is a big song that everybody knows and everybody loves. And so let's just sort of celebrate it. And that's, that's got its own value. I sort of enjoy that too. He's clearly, you mentioned earlier that he's clearly really enjoying rewriting the song because he's constantly rewriting it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so to me, it's like, it's very apparent that he just enjoys singing it, even though it's a dense song and it's long, he clearly enjoys the response he gets from people because it's, it's, it's a fun song to hear. Yeah, I think when I saw him a few times, he also, um, before before playing the song, he always bathed the stage in blue light, which is... Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Telltale signs that that's the song that was coming up. But <laughs> yeah, I, I also want to say one more thing about um, him obviously giving that song to fans and obviously, you know, realizing how much the song means to people and, you know, standing at the front of the stage and kind of coming, you know, meeting the audience halfway in a way. Um, Because that's exactly what he's doing in the song, right? He's meeting them halfway. He's playing a song that he knows means so much to people, but then he's changing the lyrics that they, that, that they love and that they know, you know, he's taking out the revolution in the air. That is someone's favorite line, Mm -hmm. you know, I think, and I think that is um, exactly what we just talked about. It kind of, uh, it's it's Dylan in a nutshell, you know. If you submit to just following him, you know, trusting him, and kind of if you just go along for the ride and see where he takes you in his performances, um, you you get so much more out of it than insisting on getting a particular version, getting you know a particular arrangement, or even you know getting the New York sessions instead of the Minneapolis <laughs> sessions. Right. Or, um, you know, him playing certain songs and not playing certain songs. I think as a Dylan fan, the, the, most, the most rewarding experience will always be when you are happy to receive what he gives you and you're open to it. Um, because I think that's where he feels most comfortable really giving, you know. Mm-hmm, he feels most mm-hmm. comfortable being creative um, when he knows he's in a space where he can be free to do all those things and to, to rewrite when he feels like it. And um, I think that's, that's our role, uh, to be his audience and to, to be there in that moment of creation. That's, I agree. Yeah. yeah. He's always heading to another joint, and uh, I hope I, I mentioned on previous shows I didn't get to see him last year, uh, but I, I certainly plan to see him this year. And, uh, you know, again, he can, he'll, he can do whatever he wants. Bob, it's fine. Do whatever you want. Uh, I think, that's, I'm, the, I think that's, the, that's the consensus, you know. Bob, yeah. you can do whatever you want. <laughs> do whatever you want, and we'll enjoy it. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, there's so much. There's still so much more to talk about with Tango yeah. and Blue, but we don't want the show to go for like 19 hours. <laughs> so, uh, and I gotta go watch this Rolling Thunder movie. Yeah. So, uh, Laura, this has just been such a delight. I mean, this show. I when I started this show, it really was just kind of, hey, this is a podcast that is about something that I like to talk about, and I don't have to do a ton of research because I know most of it just off the top of my head. Uh, but it has really blossomed into a kind of thing where I've now made a bunch of new friends through through the love of this of this work, and it's been amazingly rewarding. And so I am very, very, very honored that you would 
A, do the show in the first place, and B, come back a second time. Uh, This has just been a blast. And so, again, I just have to thank you again. This was just so much fun. I'll be back for the 500th. Oh, my God. (laughs) We're going to be probably talking about Tattle O'Day or something. We're really going to be wonder what we're going to get to at that point. So everyone here listening knows your show, but why don't you tell them where they can find you on the Internet? Yeah, so uh, you can listen to all the previous episodes on definitelydylan.com. My show kind of started out as weekly episodes on this London radio station, Resonance FM. And each week I explored a certain aspect of Dylan's art. So, for example, I've done a show on Gemini, which we mentioned in the in the discussion of Tangled Up in Blue. And I talked about that a bit more uh, with the figure of Judas in Dylan's songs. But I've also done shows on the NeverEnding Tour and uh, all, all sorts of stuff. But currently I'm trying to move the radio show because it's very much a radio show because I play rare performances, I play music, uh, but I'm trying to turn it into a podcast. But that means reworking the format somewhat that it works yep. so that it works without music, without full performances. Right. So I'm, I'm currently working on that. And in the meantime, I've turned Definitely Dylan on the week, the weekly radio show into what I now call Definitely Dylan Live, which is a bit more conversational, a bit more spontaneous, still a ton of, I mean, just, you know, the greatest performances. And then I talk about it. Uh, Robert Cheney, my partner, sometimes joins me. He's a musician and uh, also a huge Dylan fan. And we sometimes just uh, give our give our thoughts on these um, performances, and it's still it's still really nerdy. It's still really fun, but it's a bit more conversational, and that's what you see now. You can find all those episodes on definitelydylan.com, and you can find all the older episodes in the archive. And the show is also on Twitter and Instagram at defdylan, D-E-F-D-Y-L-A-N. And yeah, you can you can follow everything over there and stay up to date. There's also a newsletter on the website if uh, you want to subscribe and stay up to date. And you can buy a T-shirt. I have a oh, I have my, my definitely Dylan T-shirt. So uh, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a T-shirt that says this is what a Bob Dylan fan looks like. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I have that shirt. Very proud owner of that T-shirt. So I yeah, it's a, all the time. <laughs> it, it's a it's a wonderful show. I absolutely love it. Laura just does, does a great job on it. So. Everyone, I don't think anybody who listens to this isn't listening. Definitely, Dylan. And if you're not, you should be. And, of course, we'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, as for this show, of course, all the back episodes can be found on our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. And the uh, one you Leave five what? stars if you like it. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Please go to iTunes if that still exists by the time this episode <laughs> airs. <laughs> and you can leave a review. Uh, some people don't leave great reviews, but uh, most people do, and that's very, very nice. So um, the last thing I want to mention, because this will be the last episode before I do my live show uh, <gasps> in in Philadelphia. This, this episode is going to be, if you're listening to this the day it comes out, it's uh, Saturday, July 20th, and my live show as part of the Philadelphia Podcast Festival, will be Sunday, July 28th, where I will be uh, doing the show at the Tattooed Mom restaurant on South Street in Philadelphia. My guest will be Philadelphia Inquirer, Rolling Stone, NPR music critic Tom Moon. Amazing. And we will, be, we, we will be talking about another big song like a Rolling Stone. Wow. Uh, I'm saving the big ones for these big events. So uh, if anybody here is in the area, I would love to see you stop by. I really want to make sure we pack the house. 
So I'm um, having we a bunch of friends come. Uh, yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> um, but but anyway, if you, I have a um, uh, the pinned tweet on the Pod Dylan uh, Twitter page, and so if you could retweet that, let everybody know. I really would appreciate it because I'm not a someone who goes on stage and does things in front of people, but I'm I'm taking the risk. It will do it, and so I, I hope as uh, many people we can get as many people there as as possible. It ought to be a good time. So again, thanks everybody, Laura. Thank you once again. This is just amazing. I love talking to you, and this was just a total blast. So thank you. Thank you. So thanks everybody for listening, and uh, we will see you in two weeks. I'll be back with episode 101 of the show. <laughs> so uh, we will see you then again. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, bye. Bye. Morning, the sun was shining. He was lying in bed, wondering if she changed it all. Of her hair was still red. Her folks, they said her lives together sure was gonna be rough. They never did like mama's homemade dress. Papa's bank book wasn't big enough, and he was standing on the side of the road, rain falling on his shoes. Heading out for the old East Coast, Lord knows he's paid some dues. Getting through, tangled up in blue. She was married when they first met to a man four times her age. He left her penniless in a state of regret. It was time to bust out of the cage. Agreeing that it was best She turned around to look at him As he was walking away Saying I wish I could tell you all the things That I never learned how to say He said that's alright baby I love you too But we were tangled up in blue Santa Fe, working in an old hotel But he never did like it all that much And one day it just went to hell So he drifted down to New Orleans Lucky not to be destroyed Well, we got him a job on a fishing boat Docked outside Delacroix But all the while he was alone The past was close behind He's seen a lot of women But she never escaped his mind And he just grew Tangled up in blue was working in a topless place and I stopped him for a beer I just kept looking at the side of her face and the spotlight so clear and later on when the girl timed out I was just about to do the same she was standing there right beside my chair said don't tell me let me guess your name 
I muttered something underneath my breath She studied the lines on my face Must admit, felt a little uneasy When she bent down to tie the laces of my shoes Tangled up in blue Yeah. 